I've worked with very, very competent people in many different domains in my life. Hyper-competent people. And I can tell you some very interesting things about hyper-competent people. The first thing is they are not selfish and they're not greedy. And one of the great pleasures in their lives is to find people who have the capacity to also be hyper-competent and to open doors for them as rapidly as they can possibly be open. They delight in that because there is, there's nothing, there's, there's very few things that are more intrinsically meaningful if you're an accomplished person than to find young people who have the possibility of being accomplished and say, hey, look, here's an opportunity for you. It's like, go out there, man, kill it. And then they go out there and kill it. You think, right on, man. Here's another opportunity. Why don't you go out there and nail that too? And you think, no, no, they're all hoarding their wealth and they're not going to share it with anyone. It's like, that's absolute, complete rubbish. Mm. And so you don't even have to worry about what you're going to do after you graduate from here if you, if you turn yourself into half of what you could be because people will be dying to offer you every opportunity that you can possibly make use of. So it's, it's, it's a moot point. The, the, the world is always desperately short of people who can think and speak. And that's what everyone wants. It's what your parents want. It's also what you want. You know it. It's what you want. It's what men, it's what women want from men. It's what men want from women. It's like for you to be who you could be. And, and the highest faculty of the human being is articulated speech. It, it's, it's the divine faculty. And there is nothing more powerful than that. There's nothing that's even in the same league. And so, if you, if you don't have faith in that, then, you're, then your priorities are misplaced. And I, I can't even understand why you wouldn't have faith in that being, say, Harvard students, because look where it's got you already. You know, you're already sitting on top of the world. So make, deserve it, make use of it, right? Go out there and fix things up. That's what you need to do. There's lots of things that need to be fixed up. And what you want to do is burden yourself with so much responsibility that you can barely stand. And then you'll get stronger trying to lift it up. And you won't be asking, what should I be doing with my life? Or what's the meaning of life? Or any of that. It'll be self-evident. Mm -hmm. It's self-evident. At minimum, you can say, there's more suffering in the world than there should be. And I could probably do something about that. And you can do something about that. So go do something about it. You don't have to even have a, a sense of, of ultimate destiny or even any sort of theistic belief to regard that as a positive good. Like, I think it goes beyond the, the mere pragmatic utility of addressing the world's ills, because I think we do live in a, in a world that has a transcendent reality as well as the reality that we can detect. But even independently of that, it doesn't matter. I mean, this is part of the reason I like people like Bill Gates is a great example, man. That guy is, he's after five major diseases at the same time, right? He's trying to wipe out polio. He's trying to wipe out malaria. Yeah, exactly. He's trying to wipe out malaria. It's like, well, what should you do with your life? Well, you know, Take a look at Bill Gates and see if you could do something like that. Mm. That would be good. <laughs> Read great books. Mm -hmm. Really, man? You've got this four-year period that, that has been carved out of your lives by society. They, they, it's, it's given you an identity, like a high-quality identity and freedom at the same time. And you're not going to get that again in your life. You've got, a, you've got a respectable identity, university student and complete freedom associated with that, or as near as you're ever going to get. And you've got these unbelievable libraries that are full of the writings of people mm -hmm. who, are, who are intelligent and articulate beyond comprehension. And you, know, and, and you can go there and you can learn all this. And you might think, well, why should you learn it? Um, well, you, you learn it to get a job, or you learn it to get good grades, or you learn it to get a degree. And that's all nonsense. It's nonsense. The reason that you come to university to be educated is because there is nothing more powerful than someone who is articulate and who can think and speak. It's power. 
and I mean power of the best sort. It's authority and influence and respectability and competence. And so you come to university to craft your highest skill, and your highest skill is to be found in articulated speech. And if you're if you're if you're a master at formulating your arguments, you win everything. And better than that, when you win everything, everyone around you wins too. Because to transform yourself into let's consider consider your transformation to something approximating the logos, it means you shine a light on the whole world. Well, there's nothing more exciting to do than that. There's nothing better you can possibly do. And to think that you're coming to university to be, you know, trained to have a job, it's like great, that's a hell of a lot better than being unemployed and covered with Cheeto dust while you're snacking away in front of your video game in the basement. But it's not it's not a and I don't have anything against video games, by the way. But it, it, <laughs> but it's hardly a triumphant call to to being in the world. And that's what universities should be calling forth. It's like God, you people, you, as, you know, I, I know what Harvard students are like. I taught here for five years. You people are spectacular. You're spectacular. You, you're, you're, you're all capable of being world beaters. You transform yourself into something that's articulated and sensible and grounded in history and knowledgeable and wise, man. You can do anything you want and hopefully anything you want for good. Because if you have any sense, everything you want to do would be for the good. Because there's nothing more compelling or meaningful or or useful in combating the tragedy of life than to than to struggle with all your soul on behalf of the good. And the universities have forgotten that. It's why everyone's bailing out of the humanities. And they should. The humanities are corrupt. And they're corrupt because they're not telling students this. It's so bloody obvious. It's like, learn to think, learn to speak, learn to read. It makes you a superpower, an individual superpower. You have it, it, and I don't understand why that isn't just told to students. It's not that hard to understand, and everyone wants to hear it. It's like, really, I could do that? I could do that? It's like, yeah, really, you could do that. And the whole society around you has labored for really thousands of years to provide every single one of you with this spectacular opportunity that you have while you're undergraduates and graduate students here. Man, they're just, everyone's just praying that you would come here and manifest everything that you could manifest. And that's what you should be doing instead of waving placards and complaining about how you're oppressed, for God's sake. You see these Yale students complaining about their oppression. It's just, it just leaves me aghast. The only reason you're not rich is because you're young. You know, that's the best, really, that's the, if you look at the 1%, even the, the dreaded 1%, you know, most of those people are old. Why? Well, when you progress through life, if you're reasonably successful, you trade in your promising youth for your wealthy old age, but you're still bloody old. Would you, <laughs> would you trade it? Would you trade your youth for that? Like if you factor age out of the economic equation, things look a lot different. Well, of course, older people have more money. If they have any sense, they've been collecting it for their whole life. Is that somehow unfair? It's not unfair unless you want to want to be poverty stricken when you're 70. And you, and you don't want to be poverty-stricken when you're 70. I just don't understand what's happened to the universities. I can't mm -hmm. believe that you're not told when you come the first day, look, man, you are, you're here on a heroic mission. You're going to take your capacity to articulate yourself to levels that are undreamed of. You're going to come out of here unstoppable. You're going to be able to do anything you want. It's like, that's what you're here for. Mm -hmm. Instead, you're taught that 
well, you know, the world's a pretty oppressive place and you're probably at the bottom of the victim pile and, 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 there's, and there's, oh, there's virtually nothing you can do about it except, you know, deconstruct the patriarchy. And it's so weak deed and so pathetic that, that, that universities should be embarrassed that that's what they're peddling to students. I'm embarrassed by it. You know, I've, I've gone on public record telling parents, bloody well, send your boys to trade school because at least they'll learn something useful. And that's a terrible thing for someone like me to say because I do believe that, the art, that being articulated and educated in the highest possible manner is there's nothing that's better for you and for society. Mm -hmm. And why, are the, why have the universities forgotten this? It, students in my lectures, I always tell them, don't take notes during the lecture. Listen to the damn lecture. You can take notes afterwards because what that does is force you to practice remembering. And then with regards to books, it's like read, don't highlight, don't underline like that. I think that that's just rubbish. I think it's pseudo work. Read a couple of paragraphs or maybe an essay, something like that, depending on the density of the book. Close the book. Think about it. Write down what you're thinking. Write down what you remember. But in the context of what you're thinking about, because that instantiates it into your memory and give and puts it at hand. Like people ask me, for example, how it is that I can remember all the things that I talk about extemporaneously when I'm lecturing. And the reason for that is because I've thought them through. You know, I read them and I think, oh, okay, well, that's an interesting idea. How does it relate to all these other ideas that I know? Like, what is its significance for this idea? And what's its significance for this idea? And do I believe it? And how might I criticize it? So it's kind of like I'm, I'm attaching little memory hooks to it in, in five different ways, and then I've got it. It's, it's part of me. And that seems to be part of recall rather than recognition. And recall is the spontaneous act of remembering something complex. And when you recall something, you're actually practicing remembering it. And that's what you need to do if you want that to be part of you. So I would say separate out the function of reading and note-taking. So read, think, Right. Overall, the, the tide is lifting everyone up, and that's a great thing. And we have no idea how fast we could multiply that if people got their act together and really aimed at it. Because, you know, my, my experience is with people that we're probably running at about 51% of our capacity. Something, I mean, you can think about this yourselves. I often ask undergraduates how many hours a day you waste or how many hours a week you waste. And, the classic answer is something like four to six hours a day. You know, inefficient studying, uh, watching things on YouTube that not only do you not want to watch, that you don't even care about, that make you feel horrible about watching after you're done. That's probably four hours right there. You know, you think, well, that's 20, 25 hours a week. It's 100 hours a month. That's two and a half full work weeks. It's half a year of work weeks per year. And if your time is worth $20 an hour, which is a radical underestimate. It's probably more like 50 if you think about it in terms of deferred wages. If you're wasting 20 hours a week, you're wasting $50,000 a year. And you are doing that right now. And it's because you're young, wasting $50,000 a year is a way bigger catastrophe than it would be for me to waste it because I'm not going to last nearly as long. And so if your life isn't everything it could be, you could ask yourself, well, what would happen if you just stopped wasting the opportunities that are in front of you? You'd be, who knows how much more efficient, 10 times more efficient, 20 times more efficient. That's the Pareto distribution. You have no idea how efficient, efficient people get. It's completely, it's off the charts. Well, and if we all got our act together collectively, 
and stop making things worse, because that's another thing people do all the time. Not only do they not do what they should to make things better, they actively attempt to make things worse because they're spiteful or resentful or arrogant or deceitful or, or homicidal or genocidal or all of those things all bundled together in an absolutely pathological package. If people stopped really, really trying just to make things worse, we have no idea how much better they would get just because of that. So there's this weird dynamic that's part of the existential system of ideas between human vulnerability, social judgment, both of which are, 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 are major causes of suffering, and the failure of individuals to adopt the responsibility that they know they should adopt. And that's the thing that's interesting too, is that it isn't merely that your fate depends on whether or not you get your act together and to what degree you decide that you're going to live out your own genuine being. It isn't only your fate, it's the fate of everyone that you're networked with. And so, you know, you think, well, there's nine billion, seven billion people in the world. We're going to peak at about nine billion, by the way, and then it'll decline rapidly. But seven billion people in the world, and who are you? You're just one little dust moat among that seven billion. And so it really doesn't matter what you do or don't do, but that's simply not the case. It's the wrong model because you're at the center of a network. You're a node in a network. Of course, that's even more true now that we have social media. You'll, you, you'll know a thousand people at least over the course of your life. And they'll know a thousand people each. And that puts you one person away from a million and two persons away from a billion. And so that's how you're connected. And the things you do, they're like dropping a stone in a pond. The ripples move outward and they affect things in ways that you can't fully comprehend. And it means that the things that you do and that you don't do are far more important than you think. And so if you act that way, of course, the terror of realizing that is that it actually starts to matter what you do. And you might say, well, that's better than living a meaningless existence. It's better for it to matter. But I mean, if you really asked yourself, would you be so sure if you had the choice? I can live with no responsibility whatsoever. The price I pay is that nothing matters. Or I can reverse it and everything matters but I have to take the responsibility that's associated with that. It's not so obvious to me that people would take the meaningful path. Now, when you say, well, nihilists suffer dreadfully because there's no meaning in their life and they still suffer. Yeah, but the advantage is they have no responsibility. So that's the payoff. And I actually think that's the motivation. Say, well, I can't help being nihilistic. All my belief systems have collapsed. It's like, yeah, maybe. Maybe you've just allowed them to collapse because it's a hell of a lot easier than acting them out. And the price you pay is some meaningless suffering, but you can always whine about that and people will feel sorry for you. And you have the option of taking the pathway of the martyr. So that's a pretty good deal, all things considered, especially when the, when the alternative is to bear your burden properly and to live forthrightly in the world. Well, if you live a pathological life, you pathologize your society. And if enough people do that, then it's hell. I've been telling people online in various ways and in lectures that they should start fixing up the world by cleaning up their room. And I wanted to just elaborate on that a little bit before I get back to the lecture itself. So, as it's become this internet, weird internet meme, you know, uh, and, 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 and it's a joke, and good, it's a joke. I, I'm really happy about the fact that so much of this has got like the leaven of humor in it. It's really important because that's what stops things from degenerating into, into conflict, humor. And I was thinking about this idea of cleaning up your room in relationship to the mustard seed idea. And 
You see, the thing about cleaning up your room, this is also something I learned from Carl Jung and his studies on alchemy, because for Jung, when the alchemist was attempting to make the philosopher's stone, he was not only engaged in the transformation of the material world, but he was engaged in a process of self-transformation that occurred at the same time as the, as, the chemical as the chemical transformation. So it was a psychological work in some sense. Let's say you want to s sort out your room and beautify it, because the beauty is also important. And let's say that all you have is just a little room, like you're not rich, you're, you're poor, and, and you don't have any power, that's another thing. But you've got your damn room, and you've got this space right in front of you, you know, that, that, that's a part of the cosmos that you can come to grips with. And you might think, well, what's there in front of you, right in front of you? And the answer to that is, it depends on how open your eyes are. That's the proper answer, because you could say, and William Blake said this, for example, and Aldous Huxley made comments that were very similar, that in a transcendent state, you can see infinity in the finite. And you might say, well, you can, say in, you can see infinity in what you have within your grasp if you look, and you could say, maybe that's the case with your room. And so, you want to clean up your room. Well, okay, how do you do that exactly? Well, a room is... A room is a place to sleep. And so if you set your room up properly, then you figure out how to sleep and when you should sleep and how you should sleep. And then you figure out when you should wake up. And then you figure out, well, what clothes you should wear because they have to be arranged properly in your dresser. And then you have to have some place to put your clothes. And if you're gonna have some clothes, you have to figure out what you're gonna wear those clothes to do, right? And then that means you have to figure out what you're going to do. And then your room has to serve that purpose because otherwise it isn't set up properly. And if it doesn't set up, if it doesn't serve your purposes, you will be unhappy and not happy in the room because the way that we perceive the world is as a place to move from point A to point B in. And then if the place that we're in facilitates that movement, then we're happy to be there. And if the place that we're in serves as an obstacle to that movement, then we're unhappy to be there. And so what it means to set up your room is that you have to have somewhere to go that's worthwhile or you can't set up your room and then your room has to be set up to facilitate that. And then the next thing is, well, maybe you have to make it beautiful, but that's not easy, right? That means you have to have some taste and that doesn't mean you have to have money. It doesn't because you can be garish with money and you can be tasteful with nothing. All you need is taste, and taste beats money when it comes to beautifying things, you know? I mean, not that money is trivial, because it's not, but taste is crucial, and people who are very artistically oriented can make beautiful things out of virtually nothing. And not only that, the literature suggests that if you're going to make beautiful things, putting real constraints on, on what you allow yourself to do facilitates creativity instead of interfering with it. Because let's say you have to make something out of nothing, right? Which I suppose would be a godly act, right? You have to make something out of nothing. It, you have to be creative in order to do that. And so then to, to beautify your room means that you also have to develop your capacity to be creative. And so then you can make your room shine. But then what will happen is that if your family isn't together, they will interfere with that. You'll interfere with that because you won't have the discipline to do it properly. But then when you start building this, this, this little microcosm of perfection with what you have at hand, then it'll evoke all the pathologies of everyone in your household. They'll wonder what the hell you're up to in there. And they won't necessarily be happy because if, you're, if they're in a lowly place, let's say, and so are you, and you're trying to move out of that, then the, the higher you move out of that, the more the place they're in looks bad. And you might say, well, what they should do is celebrate your victory over chaos and evil, but that isn't what will happen. What will happen instead is that they will attempt to pull you back down. They'll attempt to... And I mean, obviously, all families don't do that, but 
but all families do that to some degree, and some families do almost nothing but that. And so what that means is that if you're going to organize your room, then you're going to have to confront the devils in your house. And that's often, that's often a terrifying thing because some of those devils have, have lineages that go back many, many, many generations. And God only knows what you have to struggle with in order to overcome that. And so, and then it, and so to sort yourself out and to fix up your room is a non-trivial matter, you know. And you, you can do that. You'll learn by doing that, and then maybe you'll learn enough by doing that so that you can fix up your family a little bit. And then having done that, you'll have enough character so that when you try to operate in the world at your job or maybe in the broader social spheres, that you'll be a force for good instead of harm because you'll have learned some humility by noting just how difficult it was to put your damn room together. Well, and yourself for that matter. And so you'll proceed cautiously with your eyes open towards the good.